So I want to give you a little background because we've kind of jumped right into verse 1 there. And it says that the people of the Lord did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So to put this story in historical perspective, about 200 years have passed, over 200 years have passed since Moses led the people out of Egypt and into the, into the promised land. Over 200 years. About 150 years have passed since Joshua led them in the conquering of the land. So they've been dwelling in the promised land about 150 years or more at the time of this story. And after they were done conquering the land, they made several promises to the Lord. And we're going to read one of them just so that we, we kind of get the context of what they were supposed to be doing. That promise is given for us in Joshua chapter 24. It's just a couple of pages to the left in your Bible probably. Uh, Judge Joshua 24 verses 14 through 18. And I want us to read this because it's, it's Joshua speaking to the people, inviting them to choose whom they're going to serve. So we pick up in verse 14. Now the fear of the Lord, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve this Lord, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who did those great signs in our sight, and preserved us in all the way that we went. And among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. So they, they're nearing the end of the conquest period. And Joshua is nearing the end of his life. He's about ready to die. And he calls the people together and he gives them this invitation. Who are you going to serve? And you see the response that they make. We will serve the Lord. And they remember all the things that the Lord had done to get him to that point. So that's where the nation was left off when they entered into the promised land. Now fast forward about 150 years, and we're at this point in the story where we picked up in chapter 1. And if you remember as we read through the story, there's this, this group, this Midianite group that's oppressing them. And Gideon is a little confused about all of that. So I want us to read one more passage before we start digging in that shows why God left those people there. What purpose did he have for these Midianites? And how did they play into the role that God would have for these people to serve him? So in Judges chapter 2, we find the reason why all these people are left. They were given the charge by God to destroy everybody in the land. They didn't do that. They were not obedient. And in Judges chapter 2, we see a passage here, verse 20. Judges chapter 2, verse 20. And it says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. 
So they were supposed to go and conquer everyone in the promised land. They didn't. God left remnants of those people so that they could be used by God to bring the people back to him when they sinned. And that's really where we're at here in Judges. And Judges covers a period of about 400 years. And over and over and over again in the book of Judges, there's this pattern that's repeated. The people do evil. The God raises up some group to oppress them. And we read why in hopes of turning them back to the Lord. The people get to a point that they actually cry out to the Lord. The Lord will raise up a deliverer. The deliverer will serve God. God uses that person to deliver them. And then they follow the Lord and peace ensues. And this pattern is repeated over and over and over again. So when we pick up in Judges chapter 6, verse 1, you can see that the previous cycle is told for us right above in the last verse of chapter 5. It said the land had rest for 40 years. So prior to Gideon coming on the scene, there was 40 years of peace that resulted after Deborah and Barak were judges in the land. And now we enter into the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1. So all that was background, just to get us caught up to what's going on. So it says here in verse, chapter 6, verse 1, the, evil did, the, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave him over to the hand of the Midianites for seven years. Forty years of peace had just passed. Now they've endured seven years of hardship under Midian because they had done evil. And this passage makes it, uh, makes it really clear. We can see here the consequence for sin. For seven years, Midian oppresses them. And in that short time, verses 1 through 6 describe the state of the land. So look at verse 2. It says that the hand of Midian overpowered them. And because of that, they had to hide in dens and caves. So remember the promise that God had given them when he brought them into the promised land. He was going to lead them into this land overflowing with milk and honey, this land of abundance. But because of their sin and disobedience, they're having to hide in the mountains and in caves and in strongholds. And in verse 3, the fruit of their labor is taken from them. It says, whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites would come in and take them all. And the land is devoured and destroyed in verses 4 and 5. You can see that. These Midianites would come in and they would camp and camp against them and just destroy the land. As many as locusts in number. So you can kind of get a picture of the consequences that sin is having in these passages. We ourselves and often those nearest us suffer when we sin. When we choose to sin and we forget God. And that's what we see happening here. They're sinning and they're suffering the consequences of their disobedience. But we also see in the next section, God is rich in mercy and grace. He does not abandon us. And we read that passage in Judges chapter 2. We know that God is using the Midianites for a purpose. He's brought these people against them because he sees the sinful state that they're in. And he's using these Midianites to call them back unto himself. It's exactly what we see happening in these passages. And in verse 6, you see that it works. It says Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people cried out to the Lord for help. So God's purpose, this uncomfortable sin that was in their life, the uncomfortable consequences of sin in their life, draw them, drew them back to the Lord. 
Now they were supposed to remember the Lord by his goodness and his faithfulness. God, even in the law, set up uh, multiple feasts throughout the year that they were supposed to keep so that they could remember God's faithfulness. They were supposed to tell the stories of the Exodus to their children. They had uh, pillars set up to remind them what God had done. They had the word of God. All of these things were supposed to be used on a daily basis to remind them of God's faithfulness. But they didn't remember. So the Lord brings these Midianite people in order to make them so uncomfortable that they turn back to the Lord. And that's really the role that sin will play in our life too. If we sin, we should feel uncomfortable about it. Uncomfortable to the point that we repent and turn back to the Lord. And we know when we do that, according to 1 John chapter 1, that if we confess our sins, He's faithful. He will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so we're going to see how that process works out here in, these, in the people as we move through the, this passage. So the people cry out to the Lord in verse 6. And I think the answer is very interesting. It's given for us in, in verses 7 through 10. They cry out to the Lord, and in verse 7, the Lord sends a prophet. And look at the message of this prophet. It says, the Lord sends a prophet in verse 8, and he says to them, thus says the Lord God, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. So the message of the prophet is, he reminds them of what God had done. God had led them out of Egypt. They were supposed to remember that. God had delivered them from the hands of those who oppressed him and had given them miraculous victory after victory after victory when they went in and took the promised land. He had driven out the inhabitants of the land. The promise he had given them was one man could drive out a thousand. And if you read the account in the book of Joshua, that's exactly what you see happening. There's even an account in there where Joshua's in a battle, and it's running late in the day, and he's running out of daylight. So he prays to the Lord for more daylight, and the, the Lord stops the sun so they can continue this battle. Those are the kind of things that were happening. So the prophet comes and reminds them of those things. He also reminds them of what God had commanded them to do. Look in verse 10. And, he, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. So he reminded them he was their God. They should not be serving the gods of the land and doing evil as they're doing. They were supposed to be serving the Lord. And then he has a rebuke for him in the end of verse 10. But you have not obeyed my voice. So let's think about this for a minute. These people are in this desperate place. Their land has been ravaged for seven years and, and just laid waste. It's so bad that we read about Gideon hiding in a wine press in order to press out the wheat so that no one would see him and steal it from him. That's how bad the situation is. And they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord sends a prophet. What message do you think they wanted to hear? They probably wanted to hear the message, hey, all right, I got this. I'm going to wipe them all out, and everything is going to be fine. That's not the message they hear. The message they hear is a reminder of what God had already done. He said, we, they wanted to hear, fear not, I am the Lord, I'm here to save you. 
Nope, God calls them to remember what he had done. So we should think about what happens in our lives when we remember the faithfulness of the Lord. When we face this kind of desperate situation, we should replay all those moments where God demonstrated his faithfulness in our lives. And then we should remember that he's told us to trust in him, that he's told us he'll never leave us and never forsake us, so that we keep our eyes on him, not on our circumstance. And that's exactly what he's called them to do. We're supposed to remember. And as we remember God's faithfulness, it brings hope for today. And then tomorrow, we'll remember God's faithfulness, and we'll have hope for that day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And that's the message that the prophet delivers. He also reminds them of what got them into this mess. They did not remember that he alone is God. So remember that passage that we read back in Judges chapter 2, verse 20. God had a purpose for bringing these people against them. And it was to, to pull them back to the Lord, to remember where it was that God wanted them. That's exactly what we see happening here. So they should be thankful. So God uses oppressive times in our lives to, to wake us up and help us remember what it is God had promised us. He wants us to repent and turn to him so that we can be in submission to him and then he can begin to work in our lives. So if God is working on you in this way, you should rejoice. I know it's, it's a strange thought, but that's what scripture tells us to do. God loves, God disciplines those whom he loves. So if he's taking you through a process right now where there's something you're not quite doing right that you should be doing, then repent, turn, and remember his faithfulness and just watch how things change from that moment. David is known in scripture as a man after God's own heart. And if you know his story, he did some things that are just amazing to think. You know, he, he slept with someone else's wife, had that, the, the husband of that person murdered, and then lied about it and tried to cover it up. And this was a man after God's own heart. But then he writes words in the Psalms where you, you know that he understands the forgiveness of the Lord. And you see how God restored him so we know of God's faithfulness. Psalm 138 verse 18 says, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. And that's the idea. So if the Lord is pointing something out to you, repent and turn back to him. And now as these people's hearts are turned back to God, remember that was the purpose of bringing these Midianites in, God will now raise up a deliverer. The people's hearts are turning back to him, and now we see the deliverer being called out. And the call is just amazing. It starts in verse 11 and really goes down to about verse 16, where Gideon is called by God. So we're introduced to Gideon in these passages. At verse 15, he gives this description of himself. Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So Gideon views himself as being from this, this, the, the weakest tribe or weak, weakest family within the tribe of Manasseh. And he's the weakest in that family. That's how he views himself. And 
we get a glimpse kind of, a, of how, how fearful he is by what he's doing when, he's introdu- when we're introduced to him. Gideon is, in verse 11, is beating out the wheat in a wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. So the Midianites would come in at the harvest time, steal everything, and so they would hide. The, the wine press would be an enclosed area where Gideon could, could hide and beat out the uh, wheat in there and not be seen. So this is where we're introduced to Gideon. So if we look at this description of Gideon, we, we see how he sees himself, or maybe how we might even judge him if we were to look at him. We would look at this, this, this man, Gideon, and think, well, he's got no position. He's never really done anything. He's just a farmer hiding in a wine press, beating out wheat. But really, is that the right view of him? So look at verse 11. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree at Oprah. This phrase, the angel of the Lord, I want to talk just a minute about that so we get kind of an idea of who it is Gideon's talking to in these phrases. That phrase, the angel of the Lord, in the Old Testament is typically used to refer to a pre-incarnate Christ, appearance of Christ. So God in the flesh came in, in the form of a man and appeared to someone. We get kind of an idea that this is exactly what's happening because of what happens later in the passage. You remember that Gideon, as we read a little later, Gideon went and, and made an offering under this angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord received that offering and allowed him to worship him in that way. Elsewhere in Scripture, whenever we see that attempted to be done to an angel like Gabriel or, or one of the other angels that appears, they always stop that process because we're not supposed to worship angels. We're only supposed to worship God. So in these passages, this angel of the Lord is none other than God who's speaking to him. And some of your, your Bibles might even use the phrase God or the Lord said to him, like in verse 16, yours probably says, and the Lord said to him. So they're equating God to this phrase, the angel of the Lord. So as we read through this passage, we should understand that this is really a conversation between God and Gideon that, that's recorded for us and that we're listening to. So in verse 12, the angel of the Lord, or God, calls Gideon, says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So I want us to think about that phrase for a minute. The Lord calls him a mighty man of valor. At this point in our story, what have we heard that shows that God is with Gideon, or that Gideon is this mighty man of valor? Have we read anything yet that gives us any indication that that's true? No, we haven't seen anything, right? Gideon hasn't done a single thing yet, other than just he was in a wine press beating out wheat. That's all we've seen of him. So Gideon does, does not see any evidence. We don't see any evidence of that. And so he asks in verse 13, Gideon asks him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to him? And where are all his wondrous deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of the Midianites. We know the answer to the question that Gideon's asking. He's basically asking the Lord here, why is all this happening to us? What's the purpose of all this? That's why I wanted us to go back and read that passage in Judges chapter 2, verse 20. We know why. God's bringing this to them that they might turn back to him. Gideon doesn't see that. 
He remembers all the wonderful deeds of the Lord. He mentions them in this, in this passage. But he doesn't see any indication that God is near them. Instead, he sees that God is far from them. And he wonders where all these wonderful things are that he had heard about happening in the past. And where are they? But, and, and he, he takes those circumstances and he imagines that God must be far from him. He looks around at his circumstance and he imagines God must be far from him. But nothing could be further from the truth, right? It's, it's kind of ironic because he's actually talking to God. He's thinking God is far from him, but yet here he is having a conversation with God himself. And if we, in our walk, if we think God is far from us, God hasn't moved. He's always right there with us. We're the ones who have taken our eyes off of him. So we need to refocus our, our thoughts, our hearts, our prayers, our minds, our actions on the Lord. And we'll see that he is right there. He loves us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And so we need to maintain that heavenly perspective. We can't allow circumstances that go on around, around us to take our eyes off the Lord. To take our eyes off Jesus and the truth that we know from Scripture. So in verse 13, he asks this question, why has all this happened to us? And in verse 14, the Lord answers him. He's, remember, he's asking, why has all this happened? He's asking a why question. In verse 14, the Lord answers him. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Does that seem like he's answering the question? He asks him why, and this is the response that the Lord gives. His response is, go in this might of yours, I'm saving Israel, I'm sending you. So Gideon is focused on why. Well, I found that when we focus on why questions in our walk with the Lord, we typically don't get an answer, because we already know the answer. The why is because everything that happens in our life is because God loves us, and he's molding us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the answer to the why question. So when we continually ask the why question, we really already know the answer. All right? We knew the answer to this. As a matter of fact, if, if Israel would have been obedient at this point and been keeping the feasts and the festivals, he would have known the answer to this question himself because he would have known that God was going to use these people to, to bring them near to God. So, we've been given the command by Jesus to be holy as he is holy. And he leads us down that path. And so the events that happen in our lives, that's the why. The more important question, rather than asking why, is, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's the question that the Lord answers in this passage. What do you want me to do? Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do, I, do not I send you? So rather than asking, answering the question why, the Lord tells him exactly what he wants him to do. In this statement, this one statement, God gives Gideon his calling and defines who Gideon is because God is the one who called him. Each of us has a part to play in the body of Christ. We've all been called by Jesus. If you believe in Jesus... He has a purpose for you, and, and he's gifted you and equipped you, and the Holy Spirit lives in you, and he's got something for you to do in the body of Christ. It's a promise of Scripture. 
We absolutely know it's true. So you have been called. You have been gifted. Go out and do what it is that you've been called to do. And that's exactly what we see God doing in this passage here with Gideon. But Gideon has some questions. As you can imagine, he might have some questions, right? In verse 15, he says, well, how can I save Israel? He, he reminds the Lord how he's from this weak family. Gideon looks around at his circumstances, the events that are going on, and he says there's no way. The Lord answers all these questions, all these questions that Gideon has with one phrase in verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. Makes all the difference in the world. But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. His answer, his response to Gideon's, how is all this going to happen, is one simple phrase. I will be with you. You will succeed. So as God calls us, that's what we're supposed to remember. God is with us. We will succeed. But like Gideon, we may not understand how. I'm sure at this point, Gideon is not, if you know the rest of the story, he's not going to imagine the way that God is going to save him. But we'll start to see Gideon taking obedient steps of faith. And we're going to watch how God encourages him each step of the way. And that's the thing I want us to see. God doesn't expect us to see how it's all going to play out. He just wants us to take obedient steps of faith each step along the way. Understanding that we have been called. Understanding that we are able to do what it is that he's called us to do. And we're going to see that play out in the life of Gideon. We tend to define ourselves and our abilities by what we see and by our circumstances. But God defines us not by who we think we are, but by what God has called us to be. And it's so important to remember that. God calls Gideon a mighty man, mighty man of valor. At this point, Gideon has done nothing to earn this title. And as we move through the next chapter next week, we'll see eventually he starts doing some things that are worthy of that title. But it's quite some time down the road. At this point, we haven't seen anything. But God looks at him as the finished product, a mighty man of valor. And that's the perspective we're supposed to have as well. So I ask the Lord to help you see yourself through his eyes, not in a boastful, prideful way, because it's not in your strength you're going to do any of these things. It's in the Lord's strength. But that view... Of, of being confident to do what it is God has called you to do, not because you have some special ability, but because it's Christ who indwells you and it's Christ who's calling you to do what he wants you to do. That's where your confidence comes. And there'll be many times when you don't understand the how and you're having a difficult time piecing together the why, but just be obedient and take that step of faith. And the Lord will confirm you He'll encourage you, and he'll guide you in that path. So God begins to do this work in Gideon, using his present circumstances to confirm God's calling in his life. So at this point, God has defined Gideon. He's a mighty man of valor. He's called Gideon. He's supposed to save Israel from these hordes of Midianites that are invading the land. He has no army. He doesn't have any experience None of those things, but this is what God has called him to do. 
So how does God help us see in us what he sees in us? How does he confirm that calling? Well, in this passage, we're going to see Gideon ask him a question in verse 19. Well, really, 17 through 24. So we'll back up to 17. He says in verse 17, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. So the first step that Gideon asked for is a little confirmation. He, he asked for a confirmation or a sign that this is actually God he's speaking to and that these things will come to pass. So put yourself in Gideon's shoes. How difficult would it for be for you to believe all this that the Lord is telling you. It'd be probably pretty difficult to take in all at once. For seven years, the Midianites are plundering the land. He's a nobody, no army, no weapons, no training, no position. Just jump up out of the wine press and go conquer the Midianite army. Hmm. So Gideon asks for a little confirmation. It's sort of like that passage that talks about, uh, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. So, so he believes, but he's asking for some encouragement in that direction. And we're going to see Gideon does this again and again throughout his call. This is the first time. So he asked the angel of the Lord or, or God to stay there. He says, if I've now found favor in your eyes, show me a sign. And then in verse 18, he says, don't depart until I bring out a present and set before you. And it's interesting in the end of verse 18. And he said, this is God. I will stay until you return. So we see that Gideon's not asking for anything out of the ordinary. He's, he's in God's will because God does it. So Gideon runs off in verse 19, gets everything together and prepares this offering that he's going to make. And then in verse 20, God directs Gideon. And I want us to see this. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock. And pour broth over them. And he did so. That little phrase right there is so important. And he did so. We see here Gideon's obedience. He obeys. And it's so important to take note of Gideon's obedient heart throughout this process. We are supposed to be serving the Lord with a willing, obedient heart. And that's why that song that we sang, Trust and Obey. If you really, you've got the bulletin, read through the verses to that song. And it's just amazing, that hymn. Because that's the way God wants us to walk. Trust and obey. And that's what we see Gideon do here. So in verse 21, God then does a miracle. It says, Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. God had just called Gideon to this impossible task. Gideon asked for a confirmation or a sign. How's this? He lays his offering out on the rock as he's told to do so. The angel of the Lord touches the tip of his staff to it. The offering is burnt up. Then the angel of the Lord vanishes. So at this point, if you're Gideon, what are you going to think? Are you going to be encouraged and emboldened to go out and do what it is God has called you to do? Well, Gideon's not. Look at his reaction in verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. Remember, this is what he asked for. Lord, show me a sign that it's really you that I'm talking to. So God gives him the sign and watch his reaction. Alas, O Lord God, 
For now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And that word alas kind of has the idea that the end is near. It's a dreadful sort of response. And we know that's true because look at what the Lord tells him in the end of verse 23. Do not fear, you shall not die. So, so Gideon wants to be encouraged, wants to be emboldened, wants to be this confirmation. But when he realized it was actually God he was talking to, he's afraid he's going to get struck dead. But look what the Lord says to him in verse 23. Peace be to you. And we know that peace came over Gideon at this point because look what he does in verse 24. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. So we see Gideon is called to this uncomprehensible task. He asks for the Lord to give him a confirmation. The Lord confirms him. And what, what's the result? Peace. He has the peace of God. Now, I want us to, to pick up on this. Has any of his circumstances changed at this point? Nothing. Nothing around him has changed. He may even have had to jump back in the wine press and finish beating out the wine, or the, the wheat. Nothing has changed around him. Does he know how he's going to go conquer the Midianites? No. And as a matter of fact, if he knew, he probably would have been a little scared at this point because God is going to lead him eventually in an army of 300 versus 135,000. That's, that's what's coming. So if he knew that, he might not have been as confident. So none of his circumstances has changed. But yet he's able to worship the Lord and he has the peace of God. Why? Because he trusted the Lord and he obeyed what God said. And his circumstances, while still real and still all around him, they didn't dominate anymore. What dominated was the word that the Lord had spoken to his heart. That's, that's the message that, that he took away from this. So Gideon is now able to worship God and enjoy the peace of God and he's encouraged to go and do as God says. And next week, when we pick up the next verse, that very same night, he'll take his first step of obedience. The very same night that this happens. So let's review a little bit of what's happening in this passage. The people of Israel are living in sin. They're doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet they wonder why God is far from them. God sends a prophet, reminds them of God's faithfulness. Gideon, at this point, is defining his relationship with God by the events around him in the beginning of our story. Gideon defined himself by the position that he had in his family, and he based his hope on what he saw. After these events transpire, by this point in our story now, God visits Gideon and turns his whole way of thinking around. Everything is transformed. Gideon's relationship with God is now defined by God himself. A huge transformation has happened there. God defined Gideon by who he called him to be and by how God would use him. That's how God defined Gideon. And God confirmed that it was him who had called Gideon through this miraculous sign that he gave him. God encouraged Gideon to trust in God, put his hope in what God had promised not in what Gideon saw around him. God worked in Gideon's heart to build up his faith to the point that he's ready for action. And 
the peace of God followed all of that process. So, for us, I want us to understand that these event, events are in fact true. When we read a story about the fire of the Lord coming down and consuming an offering, if we were standing there, we would know for in fact it was true. But the Bible says it. It's just as true as if we were standing there. It's just as true if we were the ones standing right there watching this happen. So, I want us to help us see that this same God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. This same power is available to us. So as we look around at the circumstances of our lives and the event we see, the daily reality, reality, we're tempted to ask why. But we know the answer to those why questions. God is molding us into the image of Jesus Christ. And some of the events, you may ask yourself, I don't understand how this fits in, but God does. So... Let's imagine I told you I was going to pack. We're going to go on a month-long trip. Pack for a month-long trip. In our minds, our wheels could be turning, and we'd get everything all ready for this month-long trip. But see, God is not preparing us for a month-long trip. He's preparing us for heaven. He's packing our bags for heaven. How do you prepare for heaven? What do you put in your suitcase for heaven, so to speak? We don't really know, but God knows. He knows exactly what he needs to do in our lives to prepare us for heaven. He knows the answer to that. We don't. So we have to trust him and obey what he calls us to do. It's so important to have that perspective. Left to our own devices, we might be discouraged or doubtful or confused. And like Gideon, we may define ourselves by our circumstances or by our abilities, by what we can figure out. But the truth is that God doesn't see us this way. God sees us as the finished product that he has called us to be. And he's given us his own son, Jesus, that we may be what he's called us to be. And he's filled us with the Holy Spirit and given us gifts and empowered us to go out and do what it is he wants us to do. Just like Gideon, we've been called. And he's given us everything we need to be successful. He has not left us uh, without what we need to be successful. The Holy Spirit guides us, empowers us, encourages us, and directs us in our way. So the message that God has defined us should resonate in our hearts. But more than that, we should understand that God has gifted us and equipped us with gifts that when exercised are used to edify the body of Christ. Each of these gifts is uniquely given us in this body that we may edify one another as we exercise those gifts. Gideon had a specific call. He was tempted to let his circumstances, his family history, the events around him, and even his own belief prevent him from doing what God had called him to do. But God spoke to him, confirmed his calling, encouraged him, and brought him peace. We have the promise of Scripture that God speaks to us. He has his word. He has a word for each of us. And I pray that each and every day you're in this book hearing that word that he has for you for that day. That's really what it's all about. Daily, continual fellowship with the Lord. And I can't stand here and tell you which part of this message is supposed to be applied to you. But the Lord does have a word for you. There is something here for you to take home. Maybe he's confirming a calling or he's encouraging you or maybe he has a correction for you. 
Uh, maybe he wants to help you see who you are in Christ more clearly. I can't tell you exactly what he's saying, but I do know two things. He's definitely speaking, and he wants us to be obedient and do what he's spoken to each of us. When God prompts our hearts, he wants obedience, a response. So take some time and reflect on what it is God wants you to do with this word today. But don't take too much time, because he actually wants you to go do it. You know, Don't be mulling it over so much that you don't take action. When the children of Israel were leaving the Egypt and Moses was leading them, God told Moses that he was going to part the sea and lead him across. So he led them all the way up to the sea, God did. And then the people cry out to the Lord, and then Moses cries out to the Lord, and God responds in an interesting way. Why are you crying out to me? I told you you're going across the sea. Get going. And so Moses raises his hands, the sea parts, and they cross across the sea. So there comes a point when we've heard what God wants us to do, stop crying out to him and get busy doing it. And so whatever it is he's speaking to your heart, just grab hold of that truth and get busy doing what he has for you to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, and we thank you, Lord, that it's not based on our ability. It's not based on what we can do, but it's based on what you want to do in and through us. Help us, Lord, to be obedient. Confirm your word in our hearts, Lord, we pray, and help us to bring glory unto you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.